0: Christopher Samuelson needs help from an old friend. He has a couple of new clients who are working for a Chinese investor we're calling Mr. X. Mr. X wants to buy an English football club. And things are getting complicated. So Samuelson is calling in the big guns.
1: Okay, I'll say that. He's in the undercover world. Security.
0: But what neither Samuelson nor this guy Keith know is that Mr. X isn't real. We made him up. And the two people sitting with Samuelson are actually undercover reporters working for Al Jazeera's I-Unit. This is a secretly recorded conversation, and Samuelson is really talking up his old friend.
1: He's been running his own security company for many years. He works hand in glove with us. He looks after a number of clients who have similar issues to your man.
0: The old friend is a man called Keith Hunter, a former police officer with expertise in the, let's say, ethically murky world of private security.
1: He can do all kinds of things, <laughs> like tap telephones. He's tended to have done it for Russians who have a similar problem to a him. I'm sure.
0: That's Keith Hunter calling Samuelson back minutes after receiving his text.
1: Hi, Keith. Listen, um, quick one for you. I, I, I have a situation. This is, we're in the process of buying another football club. Um, okay, one and the, secondly, um, the one of the one of our lead investors is uh, Hong Kong Chinese. Um, he was big in China, and he got attacked by the Chinese government. Usual thing like Russia.
0: Samuelson wears a lot of hats when he does these deals, but his real strength is problem solving. And in this deal, there are a lot of problems. First and foremost, the fictitious client we created, Mr. X, wants to keep his identity a secret.
1: He will not be known, but he owns this this football club. Nobody will find out unless he tells them. The only person who will know is the football league, because we're going to have to tell them.
0: But there's a complication. The client, Mr. X, is also a convicted criminal on the run, and he's not allowed to own a football club. It's explicitly against the rules of the English Football League, or EFL. In part two, we heard about the different ways that an investor can hide their identity through offshore trust funds. Now, Samuelson offers Mr. X an even better way to hide his identity, so that not even the football league knows who's buying the club. And that's why he's on the phone with his old friend, the former cop, Keith Hunter.
1: So he needs another passport. And how quickly can we get a Cyprus One money no object? Nothing quicker than that. Uh, Very fast, as fast as you can get it. Because I've got to file with the Football League for this acquisition.
0: But it's not just a new European passport that's the key to closing this deal. A wealthy businessman could easily get one for himself. What Samuelson and Keith Hunter are offering Mr. X that is truly unique is an entirely new identity.
1: He could create a different name, probably, yes. Why not? He can give himself a new name.
0: This is Al Jazeera Investigates. I'm Kevin Hurton. And I'm David
2: Harrison. For nearly two years now, we've been investigating how England's football clubs are bought and sold. We narrowed our focus to the financial side of the sport and we discovered dirty deals and massive loopholes behind the purchases of some of
0: England's most historic clubs. In part one of The Men Who Sell Football, Christopher Samuelson, an offshore finance expert and football dealmaker, got our undercover reporters a face-to-face meeting with Mel Morris, the owner of Derby County Football Club. In part two, we explored Samuelson's past dealings with Russian oligarchs. Things are getting darker in part three, as Samuelson enlists the help of his colleague and consummate dirty trickster, Keith Hunter. Hunter, a former cop, is about to set in motion a series of events that will have dramatic consequences and spark investigations in Europe.
1: To Cyprus now, where the government is suspending a controversial citizenship
2: for investment program after an undercover investigation by Al Jazeera. There's more on that to come. But first, let's return to the Connaught Hotel in London's Mayfair district back in 2019. Now that's where Samuelson first introduced Keith Hunter to our undercover reporters that we named Billy and Angie. Hey, here
0: This is Keith Hunter behind me. Good to meet you. Now we have a small problem. This meeting happened in a busy restaurant. ...and it might be hard for you to hear the dialogue on First Listen. So we're going to have an actor help out by reading portions of the transcripts to help you follow along. So when you hear this voice... Hello, I'm reading the words of Christopher Samuelson. It is a verbatim reading of what
3: Samuelson has said.
2: Samuelson and Hunter warn our undercover reporters to be vigilant... ...just in case someone is covertly recording their conversation. If you're in a public place, have noise...
3: If you're in a public place and have noise, people can't listen to you. I know too many of the old tricks.
1: I know too many of the old tricks.
2: Samuelson says he'd learnt to be cautious after years of working with
3: Russians. When we were dealing with the Russians, you had to make sure that the thing wasn't being... There wasn't bugs in the room. Here, they couldn't bug it because it's too difficult. There's nothing on the table unless that teapot's got a recording device inside it. But no, here is fine. We'll be
0: fine.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> when they finally settle in, Billy gives Hunter a rundown of Mr. X's problematic history.
4: He was convincing,
0: paying the official robbing and the money... Like Samuelson, Hunter also wears a lot of hats. In addition to brokering football deals on his own, the former Scotland Yard detective runs a private investigations firm in London called Animus Associates. On its website, Animus claims to work with, quote, the world's leading businesses and individuals, and offers a range of services, including due diligence, personal profiling, integrity testing, domestic investigations, and surveillance. So during one of his meetings with Billy, Hunter
2: explained just how far he's prepared to go for a client like Billy's boss, Mr. X.
4: If he's got a competitor that he's really aggressive with, we go after him. We go after him. Would you find out your uh, competitor, bank account details? Yep. Banks, credit cards, lifestyle. Have they got a mistress? Is there anything that we could damage their reputation with? Well, if we want not get the... Clients' competitors' phone record in a positive few months, could you also get it there for, for the client? We could potentially get that. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes it's illegal. Sometimes you can't do these things. There will be times where you could use trusted third parties to, to help you get the information you're looking for.
2: Hunter's being cautious here. When it comes to the obviously illegal stuff, like obtaining private telephone records or accessing bank and credit card details, he says that he uses trusted third parties. I give you the email address. Would you get that
4: Again, that would be for third parties to do, but it would be something. We could ask people if they would do it. You know, other people do those things, and I'm very happy to organize an introduction.
2: Some years ago, Scotland Yard investigators believed that some of those third parties were other police officers. The I-Unit obtained an internal London police report from 2008 on Hunter's former company, which was called Risk Management. That's risk with a C. The report says intelligence strongly indicates that Risk Management was an aggressive corrupter of serving Metropolitan Police Service staff. But how can you trust me?
4: Because you build up trust. My people will, will have relationships with... People that can do things that we can't do
0: in-house. Hunter was not charged following the investigation. But from what Hunter tells Billy, the services his company offers are dark arts of the murkiest kind. Here's Ben Kowdock from Transparency International.
3: Hunter is offering a range of services here which fall on a spectrum of legality. So from one end you have following people which is distasteful and could verge on harassment through to things which are illegal and breach data privacy laws, like accessing bank statements, accessing emails and accessing telephone records. And whilst Hunter talks about third parties and distances himself from this activity, the way in which he talks implies that he has done this before and his third parties have done this before as well.
2: Hunter's business activities have also resulted in at least two separate police inquiries into alleged corruption. In 2006, he was implicated in a case involving the Metropolitan Police, but he was not charged. And six years later, he was arrested on suspicion of seeking to corrupt a police officer in a
0: fraud case involving a Nigerian politician. But again, he was not charged. Samuelson has been calling Hunter to do his dirty work for years. He described to Billy how he once enlisted Hunter's services after a failed 2004 deal to sell Everton, one of the most historic and well-known clubs in England. Back then, Samuelson was trying to sell a controlling stake in the club to a Brunei-based company that Samuelson ran called Fortress Sports Fund. The main investor in that company was Russian pulp and paper tycoon Boris Zyngarevich.
2: As we heard in part two, Samuelson helped Boris's son Anton buy Reading Football Club in 2012, even though all the money secretly belonged to his father. Back in 2004,
0: Boris was doing a deal for himself. And just like with Mr. X, Boris Singarovich wanted to keep his name out of it. So the deal was all happening through this fortress sports fund. Once again, an actor is reading Samuelson's words.
1: Because they wanted to hide their identity.
3: They wanted to hide their identity because they were negotiating a settlement in their paper business in Russia. Samuelson says he worked his tricks. The deal was all said to go down when... Unfortunately, that got leaked to the media, so we didn't proceed with it.
2: Paul Gregg was the director of Everton when Zingarevich was trying to buy the club in 2004. I first met Christopher Samuelson
1: as a possible investor in the club uh, and suggesting that there would be £30 million being invested in Everton, uh, which I was sceptical about.
2: Gregg thought Samuelson was a good talker, but he didn't think he could deliver. We never saw any records of the structure of the company, uh, and most of all we didn't see where the money was. While Samison managed to keep the public in the dark about Boris Zingarevich's involvement, key people at Everton knew exactly what was happening. And they were uneasy. Next thing you know, it splashed across the front page of London's Sunday Times.
1: Unfortunately,
3: um, somebody, leaked the name of Unfortunately somebody leaked the name of the Zingareviches, the last thing I wanted. It's the
1: last thing I wanted.
3: Samuelson was furious about the leak. He says he turned
2: to his old friend Keith Hunter for what we might call extra-legal
3: assistance. In fact, we knew which journalist had got the story. We We knew which journalist had got the story, so we looked at that journalist's telephone records. It's not allowed, but we did. And we found out who he had spoken to, and one of them was the financial controller in Bill Kenwright's office, so we knew who leaked it.
0: So we know who leaked it. Bill Kentwright is Everton's owner, so it was someone in his own office at board level that was leaking the information to the media. And Hunter was monitoring their phones. It's a pretty stunning admission. He obtained the phone records
2: of a journalist who did a story he didn't like. Paul Gregg says he was worried about Samuelson from day one.
1: I didn't think Samuelson would deliver. There was no sight of any money. No bank statements, no bank letters confirming funds were available. I think we were led down the garden path. Did we do our own due diligence on this man? And my answer to that would be no, we didn't.
2: Yeah, the mole had contacted a reporter at the Sunday Times. So he called his friend the
3: journalist... And said, he called his friend the journalist and said, I've got a hot story for you. There's a deal being done by Russians called Zingarevich who are buying into Everton football. I could have shot him. Never mind, but this is what happens. It caused a big problem for Boris Singadovich in Russia because we ended up as
0: the lead headline of the Sunday Times. We really wanted to know what Hunter would do for Mr. X. When our undercover reporter Billy talked to him at the Connaught Hotel in London, he wanted some assurances. This is where Hunter first explained how he could help Mr. X get a new identity. Billy says Mr. X needs to show that Hunter can get him a real Cyprus passport. real
4: Cyprus passport passport,
0: passport? passport. Cyprus is an island in the eastern Mediterranean Sea, one of the handful of EU countries that sold so-called golden passports to wealthy foreigners in exchange for investment. Hunter makes it clear to Billy that he has friends in very high places in Cyprus.
4: But the minister that's to help us that's over from Cyprus... So, we will have a discussion as to how best we do it. And we've done this many, many times for others who, I can assure you, are in a, in a worse position than, than uh, your boss.
0: The Cyprus investment program allowed foreigners to get a passport that gives access to Europe for a $3 million investment. Convicted criminals or those facing criminal charges were barred from the scheme. But Hunter tells Billy that won't be a problem, he can handle it
4: you have going to leave it to us to to work it through and make our recommendations how we can influence this.
0: Now he's going to tell him that he can change the date of birth.
4: We might just change the date of birth
1: slightly. The good thing is we're dealing with the government, with the top of the government, um, and it's just a question of, OK, how much will it cost.
4: We've done this before.
0: Soon after that meeting, we get an email from Samuelson. He says he met with a Cypriot minister and major property developer named Christakis Giovannis in Keith Hunter's box at the horse races outside London. He says a passport can be issued in eight weeks for an investment of about $11.5 million. That's a payment of over $8 million more than the cost of the official scheme, by the way. And the next thing we know, we're on a plane to Cyprus to get Mr. X a new passport and a new name.
2: We've covered much of what happens on this extraordinary trip in one of our previous podcasts, The Cyprus Papers Undercover. Keith Hunter put our undercover reporters in touch with an estate agent named Tony Kaye. And he explained to Billy and Angie what the extra $8.5 million is for.
4: Where there are problems, it costs more money to achieve these things. So what we will do is find out who has to be spoken to, who has to be paid, what investments need to be made to achieve the given goal.
0: They say the man behind the scenes in this whole arrangement is Christakis Giovannis, the same MP and real estate developer Samuelson and Hunter say they met with at the races back in the UK. Christakis puts us in touch with a lawyer, Andreas Patagis, who would do the legwork on the passport deal. At a meeting in Patagis's office, Billy, our undercover reporter, told Patagis about Mr. X's criminal past.
4: Two years ago, he was uh, involved in some business activities, which broke the law.
3: Illegal. This illegal. So you
0: have conviction. Despite a strict rule against criminals getting Cypriot passports, Patagis was unfazed. He says it's easy to change the name on the passport. Yes, we can change your name. Change your name for a yes, yes, yes. That's for sure. Yes.
1: Just,
0: just okay. a little bit. Just a little bit. We can change it a lot of, bit. not little. Bit. Yeah,
1: because if that happens, then it's okay, okay for. The I have point. a client. Really? Yes. You know, of
2: course, I can change it. Done this before? Of course. Wow. This is Cyprus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that line. This is Cyprus, provoked a lot of outrage among the many Cypriot citizens who marched in protest when the I-Unit released this part of the investigation in the fall of 2020. Many of the high-level people mentioned in our report stepped down. The Speaker of the Cyprus Parliament has resigned in the wake of a cash-for-passport scandal. Then, remarkably, in the face of overwhelming public pressure, Cyprus scraps its golden visa programme entirely and the European Parliament launches a full-scale debate on whether it's time for all of Europe to do the same. Golden passports now face extinction in Europe, all because of our investigation into how an English football team could be used to launder money. Here's Dutch MEP Jeroen Lenaas. Can we talk about golden passports? If we, we just need to use the real name. We need to call them
1: false passports, criminal passports. Uh... And Lots of people come from all around the world and there's huge uh, uh, risk of uh, tax evasion, corruption, money
2: laundering. After our Cyprus trip, we got a few emails from Samuelson, but we soon cut off contact. We'd made it clear after our visit to Derby that Mr X had pulled out of the sale so as not to prevent genuine buyers purchasing the club. And needless to say, Mr. X did not get that new identity and passport. For months, Samuelson continued pushing new business deals, including some unconnected to football by email. We've got time, Kevin. We're good.
0: Months later, David and I are on our way to see a football match. The train is crowded.
2: It's quite a long train, but we get on? (laughs) Yeah, next
0: one. We're heading back to Derby to catch a game and talk to some fans. Our conversation once again comes back around to Chelsea Football Club, where we started this series back in part one. But the fact remains that when Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea, it sort of broke the wheel. And once they had success, everybody wanted to replicate that success and that involved massively rich foreign buyers coming in. I think that's absolutely right. It
2: sort of, it created a whole new model for the ownership of football clubs in England. But what we've also seen is the emergence of buyers who, uh, should we say, the source of their funds is not entirely clear. And I think this is a moral, ethical and and potentially criminal question for the football authorities to deal with. Who are these people who are the ultimate owners of this club? In some cases, it's hidden.
1: The next stop will be Tamworth.
2: As for Derby, owner Mel Morris is still looking to sell. In October 2020, new prospective buyers emerged led by a member of the Abu Dhabi royal family. Two directors of the company involved in the deal, Christopher Samuelson, and his business partner, Andrew Obolensky. They stepped down after two months and some months after that, the deal fell through. So we arrived at Derby. And I think it's about a 10- or 15-minute walk to the stadium. A good a crowd sort of
0: pouring out of the station yeah. here. This is quintessential East Midlands, right? It is. It really is, uh, yeah. Derby. There's this big statue out front. in a thing called Unity Plaza, and it's got two men, and David's going to come over and tell me about who these guys are. It's a little bit of a history.
2: OK, well, this is a statue of Brian Clough and Peter Taylor, with a management team in the 1970s. They came up from the, uh, the, the old second division. They won the, uh, the, the, the first division, now the Premier League.
0: That's a big deal for a mid-level club in Derby, not a big city to win, but they've tasted glory. Absolutely. And they could taste it again with the right ownership.
2: Five months after the Abu Dhabi deal fell through, Derby County announced an agreement to sell the club to Spanish businessman Eric Alonso but that deal also collapsed. So what do Derby fans think about foreign owners, the big bucks, and the apparent open door for a criminal to buy a club to launder money? Hi mate, Uh, have you had a couple of minutes? Fans like Ashton and Jamie appear even more sensitive toward who owns their club in the light of the Super League fiasco.
3: Football's for the fans. It's not for these these Super League owners. We should have fans from
2: every club representing the club, not just uh, greedy billionaires from Russia, China, you are naming it. You shouldn't have them in there.
0: For those who have reviewed our evidence, our investigation reveals a system more broken than ever. Here's football finance specialist Kieran Maguire. The evidence that I've seen here is very disturbing. Christopher Samuelson, he is
3: prepared to go beyond the the legal position in terms of finding solutions such as false identities and false passports. He is a person that should have nothing to do with football in this country. Football clubs in England hold a, a particular place in the heart of everyone. They are part of our history, heritage, community, and so on. And as such, they should be protected.
0: Ben Cowduck of Transparency International.
3: This investigation should be of great concern to football fans around the world. Football fans should be angry because it shows the entire vulnerability of the English football system to funds from dubious Origins and unsuitable owners for their clubs.
2: Derby fan Jamie agrees with him.
3: We want clean money, that's all we want.
2: We don't want dodgy, dodgy people. We don't want billionaires who've made the money from corruptness. We want billionaires who've made the money from legitness. And if we get that, the Derby fans will buy into it. We are a community club. Here's Paul Gregg, the former director of Everton
1: football more than any other business, not like buying a theatre or a cinema or whatever. It's what are you going to do for that club? Because, you know, you might want to own that club, but you've also got to recognise you might have 50 or 100,000 fans you have to look after as well. You know, you've got people who've grown up with a club, kids who've gone with their fathers, and I think they're passionate about their brand and the, the integrity of the club as well. They want a club they can be proud of, from the board, the
2: the Derby fan, Sean.
1: You need to understand the passion and be connected with the fans. Yes, we, you need money along the way to run it, but without fans, football's nothing.
0: As of this recording, Derby are still looking for a buyer. They are said to be in talks with an American consortium. Al Jazeera contacted all those involved in this investigation. Mel Morris and Darby County tell us that the club would only be sold to appropriate custodians and that they have not had any association with Samuelson for some time. Keith Hunter would not engage with the details of our findings, but strongly disputes most of them. His company, Animus, refutes all allegations of wrongdoing. Samuelson's lawyers say that he'd never been told about Mr. X's criminality, and had he known, he would have ended discussions immediately. Andrew Abalensky tells us he is not Samuelson's business partner. Tony Kaye, Andreas Patagius, Christakis Giovannis, and the former Speaker of the Cyprus Parliament, Dimitris Salouris, deny any wrongdoing. And in June, an inquiry found that the Cyprus government committed mass illegality by wrongly granting thousands of passports. That'll do it for this series, The Men Who Sell Football. Thank you for listening to Al Jazeera Investigates. This episode was produced by me, Kevin Hurton, with help from David Harrison and Jason Gwynn. Craig Pennington is our audio editor. Clean Cuts did the final sound mix. Joe DeFrias is the show's executive producer. And Phil Reese is Al Jazeera's director of investigative journalism.